welcome to episode number 74 of the speaking podcast you can find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com we also have the meditation podcast the learn polish podcast and the awakening podcast and all can be found on freedombroadcasters.com i like to have guests around the world and today my guest is half french half german please welcome dom einton thanks roy thanks for having me on your show so dom i always ask people who's dom just to let the audience know i'm asking myself that question every single day too so <laughs> let me let me try to give you the elevator pitch on, on dom as you mentioned i'm half french half german i was born and raised in france along the german border alongside the german border i was born in a hospital in uh, visambo france where the uh, room I was born in was in France, the backyard in Germany. So it's pretty much uh, a summary of my entire life right there. Uh, I'm a tech entrepreneur. I started in the early 90s uh, when I moved to the US from France uh, as a startup entrepreneur in the digital media space. Uh, I then spent 25 years in, uh, in Los Angeles, around Los Angeles, primarily in the West Coast of the US, building startups, assisting other startups getting started. And over the last six to eight years, I've slowly morphed and I've become more of an angel investor. In the spring of 2018, I left the sunny California shores for France, returned back home. The idea was to launch uh, what was impossible to launch 25 years ago in France, an incubator accelerator, and basically putting uh, a wealth of experience that we have inside our team towards the benefit of assisting young, young entrepreneurs like I was 25 years ago and helping them succeed. And that's what we do inside of Unicorn, which is an incubator and an accelerator. So we do both a very early stage incub incubation, post proof of concept incubation, as well as acceleration, which is a radically different approach of actually taking companies that already have some traction and helping them with things like customer acquisition and uh, growth, you know, growth hacking would be the term. Okay. Okay. Brilliant. So like the, the name unicorn, cause uh, we, we just discussed it prior to going uh, recording there uh, because I, I believe, is it that when you get to a billion dollar that the, the, in the business That's, sense? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a, there's a play on words there. Number one in the tech, the tech ecosystem, a unicorn is described as a company that reaches a valuation of at least $1 billion US. That term was coined, I'd say, about seven or eight years ago by a venture capitalist. But it's also my last name. My last name in German means unicorn. Brilliant. And, uh, like uh, one thing that I, that I like, I mean, my aim on this podcast actually is I'd like to have a person from every single country. I've ar already had someone from Germany. So I'm, you're half French. I'm going to put the French one down, down for you. I am sitting, speaking to you from the Southwest of France. It doesn't get any more French than where I'm at right now in the city of Sala. For those of you who are not familiar with it, S-A-R-L-A-T, Google it. It's like going back into the middle ages in the, the 12th century when they filmed Joanne of Arc in this town. All they did is well, take out the cars and everything else stayed the same. And this just started shooting roll, right? So it doesn't get any more French. It's the, uh, I mean, a lot of a lot of British people down here, they come for uh, wines that tend to be better than the British wines and uh, foie gras and things of that nature that uh, also tend to be pretty good. We are also basically, you know, very much a trailblazer in the tech ecosystem because we are in the process of becoming the largest rural incubator in the world. Within the next two months, we'll be 
if you calculate it in meters or feet, will be roughly occupying 3,000 meters square meters, uh, over 30,000 square feet of space. Uh, currently, 30 people hailing from 18 different nationalities inside the team, uh, and predominantly female, which is very rare versus male. Uh, you know, if you go to Silicon Valley, you're probably, probably going to see 90% male versus female. For us, it's 60, 65% female versus male. Um, like I know definitely with the pitching and the investing, you've obviously public speaking is something that you need. But I'm just wondering when Dom was a little boy in France, was Dom at the front of the class speaking in front of everybody or was he hiding in the back seat? You know, I was in the front of the class, but I wasn't a big speaker. Uh, I wasn't shy either, but I was a lot more reserved than I am today. I was just listening more than speaking. And I'm somewhat, when it comes to actual speaking, I'm more of a late bloomer than an early one. Uh, that being said, uh, I think that has actually helped me. I always, you know, I remember my philosophy classes, for example, and I had an amazing philosophy teacher at one point in time, where obviously in France, everybody has six opinions about one topic, right? That's what makes us unique as Frenchmen. And uh, five and a half of those are wrong. Uh, and what he was saying, because you had all these hands lifting and challenging everything about philosophy before they would actually hear him out. You know, and hear about whichever philosopher, philosopher, right? Uh, he was talking about. So he would constantly get interrupted, and at, the, at one point in time, he said, "Maybe you just should hear everything out before you actually voice your opinion." And you know, you're talking to a bunch of young Frenchmen and and French girls that you know at the first sentence lift their hands. No, I, I you know, I don't agree, right? It's not very constructive when you're when you're doing this. And I think that kind of like carried over into my professional career. A lot of people think that if you're a great salesperson, you need to be a great speaker, which is probably true, but you probably even need to be a better listener first and foremost, because if you don't understand what the hot button is of your potential client, what are you going to talk him about? You know, so if you keep talking, 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 you don't even have the granular knowledge about his business and what really makes him tick. So it's much better to first hear him out, you know, figure out his pain points and then cater your pitch towards those pain points. I love that. And if I look at myself, when you said that it was something I was always good at was listening. I didn't start public speaking till four years ago. I hated it. I used like I'd been board meetings and my voice would go and everything, but I was always able to listen. And I was good at selling because if I was one-on-one, -on -one, I, I didn't have the shyness. But so yeah. for those listening that have a fair, you know, there's other skill sets that you have that you can bring to the table and just work on the speaking one. No question. Just look in the bookshelf behind you. So if uh, I see Bold, one of my favorite uh, books uh, from Peter Diamandis, right? So if you read that book and Tony Robbins right next to that, not far, not, not far away, you know, you, you know what we're talking about. All of these people, they're, they will tell you the same thing. Listen before you talk. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I'm, I class myself as a serial entrepreneur. I've been involved with a lot of, uh, I mean, since nine, nine years of age, I was washing cars. I was doing uh, newspapers at 11, always, <laughs> always mealing and dealing and everything. And what I've seen, because I've been involved in startups and everything, a lot of the time you can have people with a brilliant idea and they're not able to speak and they can ruin a brilliant business idea. What experience, what have you seen and, and have you any tips you can give people? I actually think this is a, you hit the nail on the head, uh, especially inside our ecosystem. When I say ecosystem, 
when you're looking at the startup ecosystem, you basically need to have a balance between supply and demand. The demand comes from the startup side looking for capital. The supply comes from the investor providing that capital. And what I've realized over 25 years, and that's actually a problem we're looking to resolve with Unicorn, is that there is a huge gap between the expectation of the startup entrepreneur looking for money and the investor potentially be willing to provide that money. And I call it the expectation gap. In a nutshell, the easiest way to uh, metaphorically represent what's going on in this ecosystem is that investors are listening to AM and startup entrepreneurs are pitching on FM, right? So they don't understand each other at all. And I remember my first meetings as a young startup entrepreneur pitching investors product focused because I didn't know anything about finance at that point in time when I was 23, 24 years old, and I would lose him. And then he was talking to me about valuations. You know, is this pre-seed money? Is this series A round, et cetera? And I was like, what is this guy talking about, right? So you have the two completely different worlds, right? And I think that what I realize is the best angel investors today, they're all previous startup entrepreneurs. They can feel the pain point. They understand what it feels like to be on the other side of the table. But both sides need to make an effort to be able to broadcast and listen to the same channel. And that's still not happening today. It wasn't happening 25 years ago. It's slowly starting to get a little bit better, but there's still a massive gap between the two. And I mean, like I, I was a, a fan of Shark Tank and Dragon's Den, you know, for the pitch, and I, I, I like watching it. But what, what I see, and I, I see it a lot, I see it here as well, because... Um, what happens is people spot a good idea. They also spot that a person isn't confident on stage. And then they come in and they try to take control of the company. Like, have you tips uh, how you can advise the person not to fall down that rabbit hole? Because Oh, so yeah. I mean, obviously for me, like uh, shows like Shark Tank are somewhat of a dumbed down version of what we're experiencing. I mean, glamorized with a heavy dose of Hollywood, right? Yeah. So does it really happen this way? Yes and no. But I think the best tip I can give to a startup entrepreneur is to not try to do everything yourself, right? If you suck at public speaking, find someone who's great at it. Because ultimately, if you're setting up to change the world and to really provide a solution to a problem, there is no business without providing a tangible solution to an existing problem. Let's just be clear about that. Because what we're seeing too are many vanity businesses that are popping up as a result of a little hidden passion by a startup entrepreneur, but they don't have any real repercussion. They don't really respond to a dire need in the marketplace. So there has to be product market fit first and foremost. Secondly, when it actually comes to being able to communicate your value proposition, if you intend to truly change the world and build a groundbreaking enterprise, you have from day one, you have to start thinking about what your team will look like five years from now. Because if you need to scale, you'll have no choice but to make key hires and bring on other people. If you don't intend to scale, you probably don't have any reason being in business unless you want to be a solo consultant or something along those lines. Nothing wrong with that. But if you're really looking to build a business that can scale, you will need to bring in other people. And those people should be complementary to yourself, meaning that I'm building a puzzle of 100 pieces. Each one of these pieces identifies a key employee that we'll need to have in my organization. 
the last piece I need on my board is another me. I'm already there. I cannot place it anywhere. In the meantime, I have this gaping hole over here, maybe in engineering, maybe in sales, maybe in marketing, maybe in public speaking, PR. I need to fill that gap so that the best teams that I see being assembled are not teams of generalists. They're teams of specialists. What you really need to do is find out what you don't like to do, find out where you're struggling, and quickly and efficiently find the best person to put into that spot, someone who is way beyond your skill set and your ability in that specific domain. And then you will see your business, you know, everything seems to be taking care of itself. But you need to be able to identify those people early on as you're building your business because you will need them if you intend to scale. And I see a lot of people make the mistake of bringing in their friends at the start. You know, it's a horrible, it's a horrible idea because uh, both you and I, I'm sure, have seen many, many friendships getting ruined this way. Uh, you may think you're doing the right thing. You know, if you're really into growing a real business, uh, forget about favors, whether receiving or giving favors, right? You use your rational mind and not your emotions, right? Uh, sometimes aligning a rational mind along with your gut feeling is a strong thing, right? I think that a gut feeling is not an emotion. An emotion is if I'm at a checkout stand at a supermarket, I grab a bag of M&Ms, that's an emotion, right? Oh, I'd like to have that right now. I'm acting in instantly and then I'm going to like scarf it down and done with it, right? You, would, you don't want to do that. Take your time, take some distance, challenge yourself on every decision you're going to make. If you intend to hire a brother, a sister, an uncle, a cousin, someone in the family, ask yourself, is this person really the best person that I could be hiring for my business or would someone I don't know who is not a family member do an equal or a better job? Because the situation you don't want to be in, you see, you don't want to ruin a personal relationship because he or she does not perform up to your expectations inside that business, which at some point in time is going to create friction and it's going to create a lot of havoc within the family itself, right? Well, I had to let my brother go. I had to let my uncle go. But why? He's your brother. He's your uncle, right? Why did you have to let him go? And then he's going to have his story, right? It, it's just not a healthy situation to be in. I know it feels good at first because you think, wow, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing a great thing. But ultimately, you're hurting yourself and you're hurting that other person. Yeah, exactly. No, I have seen that. I've seen families fall apart because of, because of that. The other thing is sometimes people do bring in the teams at the start. Uh, that would be kind of suitable for, say, maybe a million pound company. But as it scales up to, say, you know, 10 or 100 million, you know, the people's skill set don't and they want to keep the team. But the reality is you have to cut the ties as well with uh, some of your original key players. No, no question. I mean, it's obviously business is a moving target, right? You, you know, you have to reinvent yourself day in, day out. Uh, clearly. Uh, that also means that you have to make adjustments along the way. You have to course correct. You have to be able to pivot. And sometimes that means letting people go and hiring new people. So when if somebody's coming to you with a pitch, right, if they're they're giving their idea, what's the best things they could cover? Let's assume that they're they overcome the speaking, the public speaking, or they have, you know, they've got somebody representing. What's the best things to get the investor interested that they should discuss? Do you allow me to start with the worst thing first? 
Uh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get rid of some false positives first. I, I was I would say the worst thing to hear is 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 an overly confident entrepreneur who is just pitching, does not listen, as we discussed earlier. And he is using very general terms to describe to me how he's going to take over a specific line of business. And he will come to me and say, for example, the market is a $100 billion market, and we intend to grab 10% market share within the next three years. Well, I could then spend the next hour or so telling him that he's out of his mind, but I'm already cutting off. Thank you very much. Wish you the best. But have a nice day. There's a lot of people that do that, that actually they right. say the market is X billion. And when I hear that, it's like I just shake my head as soon as I hear that one. I'm, I'm done before you even get started, right? So this is your elevator pitch. I'm going out on the first level, right? I'm, ex <laughs> I'm exiting. Thank you. Thank <laughs> You're you. on the ground floor. Good luck. Yeah, I, I intended to go to, to level number five, but I'm hitting, I'm, I'm, I'm changing my mind. I'm hitting one, right? And, and I'm out of there. But the flip side on that, if you come to me, and you actually show to me that you understand that that's not how things work, that you cannot just assess a market by its sheer size and arbitrarily claim you're going to grab a big piece of that market. And you say, look, this is where we are today. This is where we intend to go. These are the obstacles we're going to face. And to be honest with you, as you know, Mr. Investor, most startups fail. We're very aware of that. Here's the reason why I believe that we are less likely to fail than others. Now, if you come to me and you're that honest, I'm listening to more, right? That's your hook point. And I would strongly recommend that everyone craft specific hook points. Because in the world of social media, where we're scrolling through social media feeds and paying attention for two seconds and we're gone, you have to be able to grab someone's attention and to engage them. So, and basically, if you grab them enough with the one liner, an elevator pitch or even shorter than that, they will then in turn give you their approval, their nod, that you can actually continue pitching them. Usually by a question. Oh, really? Tell me more. Right? That's one example. How do you do that? Right? But that's an open door. Now you basically take your one liner and you turn it into a paragraph and you pause again, instead of keeping pitching, pitching without knowing more about the investor. So now you go from a one line to three sentences and you pause, you look at his reaction. And then if he keeps asking you questions, he then engages in what it is that you do. You show that you're capable of listening. He's giving you more and more information about what really interests him, what are his key drivers. And that's how you're ultimately going to take that engaged investor along the conversion path, right? So that's a little bit of advice from both sides of the spectrum. I think, again, you know, as me as an investor, there's a lot of things that just turn me off very, very quickly, some of which we've already identified. Then I'm also quickly turned off by what I call the, the lone wolf symptom. And what I mean by that is that there are quite a few entrepreneurs very often engineers that lock themselves in a garage. And then we have this fallacy being preached to us for the last 30 years that the best startup started in a garage. Well, I got news for you. If you dig a little bit deeper on Hewlett Packard, on Google, et cetera, they really didn't start in a garage, right? They may have lost a hammer in the garage. They went and got it, but they quickly got out of there. So 
the lone wolf basically isolates himself from the rest of the world because he thinks he's a genius, right? I have the best, I'm building the best startup since sliced bread. Nobody talked to me, right? I'm in my bunker and I'm working on this thing. Not knowing that what he's working on has already been built 10 times over and, and a lot better and not knowing that the market is just running away from him, right? So that's why I'm fully embracing the open source concept, right? Because in sharing of ideas, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, another big pet peeve is the, the startup may come to you and before you even know what he's talking about, he's gonna want to make you want to sign an NDA. Well, what am I gonna disclose? I know nothing about what it is that you do. And after five minutes of talking, right? it's going to turn out that the last thing I want to do is do another business, right? I'm not in your business. So if you don't show, if you don't prove to me that you have at least as, that much knowledge about me, not knowing that I'm not never going to replicate your business because the last thing I need is another business. Don't even bother pitching me. Have a nice day. Right? Mm -hmm. So the NDA is something we used 25 years ago, which really went well. If somebody today, if somebody after two, two minutes of talking is I need to send you an NDA, would you mind signing it? Yes, I, I would mind. I'm, I'm not interested, right? I, I, I agree with you on that one because I, I even said to people, yeah, I can sign an NDA. I can give it to my buddy and he can go and create it and I can be a sign. You know, MDA doesn't mean nothing. Yeah, and, and to that point, uh, you know, people, people tend to overvalue the idea and completely undervalue the execution upon that idea, right? You can give me an amazing idea with bad execution versus a so-so idea with amazing execution. I'll take the latter any day. What, what about um, somebody that has to go through the figures? Because obviously some businesses, you know, especially if they're operating and they want to go, like a lot of the times people think they need to remember these. Is it okay for somebody to have them printed off, hand it to the different uh, people they're pitching to and go through it? Or what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, first of all, let's be honest. If you're a pre-revenue startup or early stage revenue startup, your pro forma is a living and breathing document. Whatever you're putting, you're just throwing a dart against the wall, right? So at least also show the honesty that this is not rocket science, that a month after you kick off, it's already completely going to change. Use, as, use it as a guideline. Yes, you need to put some numbers, but make sure that you are aware and that you communicate to that to the potential investor that things are, because we're early stage, things are radically in flux. We may need to pivot Here's the reason why. Show that you have more of a, a more global understanding of how things work, because I have never in my career seen an early stage startup stick to its guns over a period of months and not revise their pro forma financials. Never, ever, right? And usually they all overshoot on those pro forma financials because they're trying to convince via numbers picked out of thin air very often an investor to invest. From my experience is you double the actual, the costs, do you double the cost and you have the sales? That's what I've kind of. That's probably a good rule of thumb, yeah. For those of you who have video in Texas, they call it this principle, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like another one is uh, like, if, if you see a, let's not say a husband and wife, because obviously if somebody's a husband and wife for say 20 years, it's a safer bet, they'll be okay. But if they're in a relationship for two years, because obviously if a relationship in the partnership breaks, is that something that you would just shy away from if somebody's coming with a pitch? 
I have very hard feelings. I mean, I uh, mixed feelings about husband and wife teams. So the very next startup that we're bringing on inside of Unicorn is a AI mobile app applied to competitive runners run by a husband and wife team. Uh, wife's French, husband's Jamaican, which technically means he runs faster than she does, I guess. Uh, very skilled at what they do. But I had my initial question marks and radar screen go off immediately because husband and wife, what happens if there is a breakout, et cetera, et cetera. But I actually asked them that hard question. And clearly nobody has a crystal ball when it comes to relationships. But the, their answer was very, very satisfying to me, right? Without going into personal issues. I was actually surprised. I was like, wow. It showed to me that I've actually thought about that. Yeah. Okay. And if that ever were, if that unlikely event were to happen, they have a plan B and I can live with that plan B. So typically I have a little radar question marks that go off when I see that. But at the same time, some of the most promising startups are run by husband and wife teams. Uh, I think what's important to see, the question I usually ask him is how long have you been, how you guys been together, right? Ideally, it's not three or six months, okay? So in this case, there's children involved, et cetera, you know, that are going to junior high school and whatnot. So clearly they've gone through the ups and downs of a relationship. And sometimes having overcome those types of issues translate very well also to the entrepreneurial world because you know, especially as an athlete. So I love seeing former athletes as entrepreneurs because they understand the pain and they know that you have to get up when pain shows up, which you can have every day. So inside of Unicorn, for example, we have seven professional rugby players working for me. Oh. I love these guys, right? Because again, going back to rugby, for those of you, you're Irish, of course, you know what rugby is, but that's for Americans listening in, it's football without the padding, right? Roughly speaking. <laughs> so <laughs> a lot of pain, a lot of contact and what I find great about these guys is if I don't slap them around a couple of times a day, they think there's something wrong with me. I'm sick, right? <laughs> What's going on, Dom? You know, are you in bad mood today, right? So I have to slap them every once in a while, live over the shoulder and whatnot. They absolutely love that. And they also understand, you know, that philosophy of failure versus success. What a lot of people believe, when a lot of people look at success versus failure, they actually think that they're contradictory terms, when in fact, they're very much aligned, at least in my vocabulary. So in my experience, and a lot of entrepreneurial experiences, unless you fail many, many, many times, you will never get to success. And actually each failure becomes a stepping stone to success. And the usual example I use was Thomas Edison, who, as most people would agree, was the inventor of the light bulb. And when he was asked, by other scientists in the media, why he succeeded where so many others failed. His answer was, it's because I finally ran out of things that did not work. In other words, I failed thousands of times. I actually ran out of failures. I had no choice but to succeed. And if I look back at my career, that's exactly what happened. So today, what we're actually doing is we're actually provoking failure. What I mean by that in the tech space is that a failure is only painful if you stick with it, right? And if you actually don't, the worst part is you don't realize that you're currently failing 
and you're staying on track. So if you use proper metrics, let's say you're a digital marketer, clearly if you don't measure return on investment on the advertising spend, you're shooting yourself in the foot. You could be failing for months, right? That's the old advertising adage where, you know, half of my advertising is not working. I don't know which half, right? Today, that's no longer the case. The idea is to fail as quickly as possible and as cheaply as possible to eradicate those false positives and actually get to the success. The quicker you burn through these stages, these mini failures, the quicker you will get to success. And actually, if I look back at my career early on, when I moved to the US, the first thing that we did is we started selling websites in a time where no one knew what a website was. Nobody knew what the internet was, was called the information superhighway in the early 90s. So we would be calling telemarketing business to business and talking to business owners and say, have you ever th thought about building a website? What the heck is that? Website? What? <laughs> Click. Next guy, well, I vaguely heard about it. Why, why does that matter? Ah, this internet thing is all a fad. Click, et cetera, et cetera. So I still somewhere have a cheat sheet from back in those days because I measured my failures and how many failures I would have to burn through in order to get a success. How many no's do I need to get? How many maybes until I eventually get a yes? And I came up with a rule of 36 to one. So I needed to make 36 contacts to get a sale, right? So sometimes I went for 70 calls without a sale and then I had two in a row, right? But it all averaged out to that single math. And basically what that taught me is that unless I'm willing to burn through these failures, unless I'm willing to live through that pain and that friction, I will never have a success. And what you see very often today are young entrepreneurs that I would call spoiled, that have not gone through these pain points and they just expect to succeed overnight. And I look for that very, very early on. What's your tolerance for pain? right? And I ask some very, very specific questions about that. What would happen if this happened, right? You lost all your money today, right? What would you do? Uh, well, I would go get a, get a job. Okay, have a nice day. You're not an entrepreneur. You need a job. You're not an entrepreneur. The, the two are not aligned, right? A minority of the people in this world is cut out to be an entrepreneur. Let's just be very, very clear about that. It takes a very specific kind, usually type A personality that just like knows how to hustle, knows how to fall down, cope with the pain, get up on, on its track and figures out another way on how to make it work. If you do not have that mentality, don't even try to fool yourself because you're setting yourself up to fail long-term. Yeah, like <clears throat> I've often done that when, uh, you know, if I was raising money or whatever, I'd have a list of all the investors. And that, that was my motto was like, the, the more no's, the closer to a yes I'm getting. And I would 100%. actually class it as a win every time I got a, a no. But one of the other parts of that as well is, I mean, I've, I've been knocked left, right and center. I've lost count. It doesn't bother me. It's like, I, it's the psychological part of getting up. But you see some people and a small little knock can really throw them. And do you like, have you ways of actually trying to help a person in the, in the, the psychological sense? You know, I think, and that's where I think we need to draw the line between EQ and IQ, right? Uh, intellectual quotient versus emotional quotient. That basically what I'm looking for is a combination of both. The ideal person has a high IQ and a high EQ. But if I have the choice between the two, I will take high EQ over high IQ any day. Yeah. Okay. 
because what you're seeing is you see a lot of bright people that are very bright intellectually, but have somewhat of a low, low EQ. And it's very, very difficult to solve that problem because we've all been raised a certain way. So if you've been raised with a silver spoon in your mouth for the last 25 years, it's difficult to basically rewire your brain and to be embracing pain, right? Because you've never know what it felt, right? Yeah. I felt pain very, very early on in my life. So I'm, I consider this the biggest, biggest blessing, right? I felt what it was like to be beaten, right? Uh, physically in a, in, a, in, a, in, in a boxing arena, right? And actually to get up and taste your own blood at the age of five and say, wow, okay, it can only get better from here. But if you learn that at age 25, when your brain is pretty much hardwired, I'm not saying you cannot change, but it is a lot more difficult at that point in time. And you need to build this resilience, right? Some people, you know, because it doesn't start at age 25. This starts at a very early, 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 early childhood, right? If everything came to you easily, it was handed to you on a platter, et cetera, that's what just when you're going to be expecting when you become an entrepreneur. You're going to expect those kind of overnight hits and successes, and you're going to be falling from very, very high because it doesn't work that way. If you come in with very low expectations because you've had a very, very rough childhood, upbringing, et cetera, look that as God's given gift to be very, become very successful because you can parlay those experiences into successes later on in your life, right? So you see, for example, if you go inner city New York kids, right, that had a very, very rough time, but they were, had no choice but to hustle growing up, they end up becoming very, very successful entrepreneurs, even if they're not as bright intellectually as some others. Exactly. And uh, what about when you've got, say, a team of um, partners, you know, three or four, and you can see a, a personality a conflict? You know, one guy, is, it's his way or the highway, even though they might be equal shareholders. Is that something that you've experienced? Many times. Uh, I'd say still today. Uh, I would call that more healthy friction if you keep it healthy. Uh, I think it's very important to be able to understand other people. So, for example, in the French system, what I like about a lot of things I don't like about the French system, but growing up in the French educational system, when you actually write an essay, you have to have basically you have, you have three chapters you're writing. If chapter one is you take one point of view, chapter two, you take the exact opposite point of view, but you're able to. You have to be able to defend it equally with equal, equal passion as the first point of view. And then three is kind of like the synopsis where you can actually say what you think, right? It's a good exercise, mental exercise, because when you're in those situations and someone, for example, attacks you, you know, verbally across a table, let's say in a, in a boardroom situation, the first thing you have to do is before snapping back is to understand where they're coming from and kind of like look at the forest for the trees. And if there's too much friction on an ongoing basis, it certainly is not healthy. And that point in time, it's probably a good idea to bring in somewhat of an arbitrator, a filter who keeps people at bait, right? Uh, because otherwise it's just going to get out of hand. And because too much friction for too long is not healthy. And nobody, we, you know, there's tons of research that shows that all our creative juices do not properly flow if we're under duress right so you definitely want to avoid being in that situation but every once in a while cleaning out the air 
you know, putting your fist on the table or having somebody else put the fist on the table in front of you is actually healthy, right? If it, if it just is a one-time event and you clear the air and you shake hands, well, right now we fist bumps right now with COVID or whatever it is, you know, that's, that's a healthy situation. But don't let the house burn down as a result of that. So take some proactive measures and bring in another person maybe from the outside who can actually act as an as an arbitrator or as a referee okay and um, another thing is sometimes let's say they're holding on to their baby and you need to bring in the ceo to manage the company which you know will be better sometimes you know people they don't want to kind of relieve the, the child as such even though they'll have still their shareholding how do you encourage a person to is it that you tell them the story that you know the way it's going to develop i think the other I, person? I think you're right i think at that point in time it becomes storytelling the best storytelling sells so in this in this situation if you have a person that just does not want to leave the first thing you do is you, you use bill clinton's famous line i can feel your pain and then you pause right so you basically show that you're you're understanding you know where he's coming from and I would go through and say, look, I understand this is your baby. You've put your life and soul in this, et cetera, et cetera. And frankly, if I were in your position, I probably wouldn't know what to do either. Right. But it's a process. Mm -hmm. Then you basically, because now you actually gain that person's trust as well, because you put yourself on equal level. Okay. Because you can feel his pain. But at a point in time, you have to then move forward and actually say, let's look at this from both sides. Let's look at what you're in, what's in it for you, what's in it for them. Would you agree that on this and that, you know, they may be right, you may be wrong. And here, I agree with you, you're right and they, and they are wrong. Try to find some common ground, right? Some people cannot be reasoned. There's no question about that. Some people will actually go to the point of self-sabotaging rather than having a nice exit. I've seen this as well, right? Where they were given a golden parachute, like a buyout. And they absolutely categorically refuse because they think it's attacking their ethos. But in fact, most time it's ego, not ethos, right? So yes, you cannot salvage all of the situations, but I think that a reasonable person can be convinced with reasonable arguments. And if you show that you understand where they're coming from and what's in it for them, very often, I would say probably the majority of those cases can be solved amicably where both sides walk away from the table happy. Okay, excellent. Very good. And another one that I'm curious about and it's kind of in innovation is on patents. What's your view on that? Because I know the costs involved and then there's like, you know, you can get the European one, the international one, the ongoing costs. And my other thought process is, are you actually giving your secrets away? Because there's a lot of bad boys that are controlling the patent industry. So I'm curious how you feel about it. I, I would say with regard to patents, even trademarks today, you can pretty much throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, if you have a groundbreaking idea, a groundbreaking concept, what really matters is not a patent, it's speed to market and market share as a result of coming speed to market. You could be spending two or three years on legal work before you awarded a patent pending or eventually getting the patent, and that market has already shifted. And actually what proves that point is that you and I could go to the patent marketplace today and buy 10,000 of them for pennies on the dollar, right? So I think the days, thank God, those days are over where people are just, you still have the patent trolls, 
you know, the attorneys that are basically, I had some issues like this 15 years ago where I would get sued on a weekly basis by someone I had never heard of claiming that I had infringed on a business process patent and it was nowhere near related to what we were working on and what we were doing. And it, all it was, was extortion. It was legalized extortion, basically saying, hey, come to the negotiating table, settle this case, okay? Or we're just gonna continue, we're just gonna come after you. It's a big problem in the US that, you know, that still needs to be reformed. But if you're an entrepreneur today, I would say, unless you have something, a technology that's so granular, that so, has such a high value in the IP itself and not in the commercialization of the product or the service, don't waste your time. Speed to market is everything. You know, if you look at the successful models that we've seen, YouTube in 2005, 2006 could have probably patented what it is that they did, right? Because they were first comer. It didn't bother. As far as I recollect, it did not bother. They just went grab market share. Back then, bandwidth costs were exorbitant. They were losing millions every single month because millions of people were joining, right? But it worked out pretty darn well for them long term. <laughs> they got a nice little offer for Google, which today, in hindsight, looks like a pittance. I think the acquisition price was 1.6 billion. Yeah. If Google, if 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 YouTube were on the market today, it would probably be 50 to 100 times more. Exactly. And the the other thing as well, I'm not sure people realize, but if somebody is infringing on your patent and they have a company and they're making millions or billions and you go after them. They just close the company and open up a something else overnight and you get nothing. All you have is a, the bills from your solicitors. It's very hard to actually uh, get money back through the, the legal process with the patents. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, it's, it's, it's really is a loser's game. The only ones that are winning are the attorneys. No, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And just on that actually, cause, uh, uh, before we finish up, because I think uh, legal contracts and everything, um, like I always say that if you're liaison with someone, the best thing is to get the two solicitors in the room so you get it finalized fast instead of um, playing tennis with your money. Um, what, what's your view when it comes to like liaising with solicitors and getting good contracts and stuff like that? This is I, think it, I, think, I think those are important because uh, you definitely want to have everything buttoned up for a number of reasons. Number one is the enforceability of what you're agreeing on, what you're agreeing on. So for example, when it comes to actually, if you're a service provider, you actually want to make sure that you can collect on uh, the work that you delivered. It's very important to have a solid agreement with regards to that. And then it's just general housekeeping. If you're growing a startup in particular, you want to make sure that because that contract has value unless that contract is encapsulated in an enforceable legal agreement, that value is very, very loose. It's hard to define, right? So I think here we're talking about just general housekeeping, which is very important to have. The same way you're going to keep your invoices in a neat little file, neat little folder. You're going to have your agreements against the invoices, especially if you're being looked at, if you're growing fast and you're a potential uh, acquisition candidate for a larger company. You want to be in a position, put yourself in a position when they actually do the due diligence of just handing them one file. Here it is, everything you need to know about us, right? And it, it will pass like a song. But if they actually start digging and you say, where's the agreement against that invoice? And you say, well, it's a verbal agreement. Then the radars are flying all over the place, right? It's not a good situation to be in. Listen, Dom, it's been fantastic. How can people get in contact with you? Well, Roy, first, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. Really appreciate it. Uh, I'm easy to find. Dom Einhorn, I think I'm the only one on LinkedIn. D-O-M as in Mary, 
last name is spelled E-I-N-H-O-R-N. The website is unicorningcubator.com. That's unicorn with a Q. And my email is dom at unicorningcubator.com. And finally, last but not least, for those of you who want to travel after COVID, I'll give you the best excuse why you should travel is we're launching the Startup Super Cup in Salah, France on October 1, 2, and 3. It's a weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And it will bring together uh, 1,000 investors, 100 startups, 100 plus media outlets uh, pitching to for the grand prize, which is the Unicorn Super Cup. Again, October 1, 2, 3. To find out more information about that event, you can go to startupsupercup.com. Excellent. And I'll put all the all the information that you've just said on the description of the podcast below. So listen, Dom, thank you very much. Thank you, Roy. Thanks for having me. So that's all for a speaking podcast. You can find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com or on YouTube or on BitChute. Be sure to share with your friends. Give us a thumbs up. Until next week, take care.